If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome on the first Sunday of the new year from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Will you bow your heads with me? It is tradition, Holy One, for us to read part of the first creation story today. Not the whole thing, just the first five verses. In the beginning... When God was creating, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day, it occurs to us that it, it really doesn't sound like you knew in advance that it was all going to work out, Holy One. There was chaos and disorder and confusion. But in the midst of all that, you created, tried a few things, made some changes, and it turned out that it was good. It also occurs to us that perhaps this is not just an ancient people's mythological explanation of how things came to be, but a model for how we are to face our own chaos, disorder, and confusion. In the midst of everything, create, try a few things. Be with us, Holy One, as we try to finish the sentence In the beginning, there was chaos and uncertainty. And still, they sent in the application. She wrote the first draft. He volunteered. They made some changes. Grant us the courage, Holy One, to try, to trust, to take a chance. We can't be sure it will all work out, but there's a possibility that it will be good. For the Bible tells us so. With hearts created in your image, we pray. 
Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, With you, I am well pleased. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. After taking a short detour last Sunday in the Gospel of Matthew, we are back in the Gospel of Luke to finish out our Advent and Christmas series, How Does a Weary World Rejoice? Over these last six weeks, we've acknowledged that we so often hold sorrow in one hand and joy in the other, and that they can inform each other if we are intentional about it. While this is the last Sunday in this series, it is the first Sunday of Epiphany, a liturgical season celebrating the ultimate, but not exclusive, revelation of the divine presence found in Jesus. This season holds story after story after story of people recognizing the divine presence of God in the work and ministry of Jesus. The season of Epiphany is six weeks long, which sometimes surprises people, but the revelation of the presence of God in the life of Jesus, well, it just wasn't a one-and-done event. Sometimes people think this is the case, though, because of the other stories we've read, as in the multitude of angels appeared to the shepherds on Christmas Eve and made it known, to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. Message delivered, lug nut fixed it, everyone should now be on the same page when it comes to Jesus, right? This is often how we think therapy is going to work. (laughs) That we will go to one session, the therapist will hand us an epiphany in clear and complete sentences, and we'll walk out the door without needing to schedule a second appointment, because all of a sudden, We understand. No, ma'am. That is not how therapy works. It is also not how the season of epiphany works. It is assumed that the moment of any epiphany is sudden, but the season of epiphany reminds us that that most revelations or understandings unfold rather slowly. Something that has been hidden is unveiled, not in the blink of an eye, but rather a realization or recognition that comes after consistent reflection. It can take some time for us to understand a thing, much less respond to it or make changes in light of new information. If we have any doubt about this, we just have to answer the last question Brene Brown always asks her guest at the end of her podcast. What is the lesson the universe keeps putting in front of you because you keep needing to learn it? Everyone has an answer. Again, not a one-and-done situation. 
On this first Sunday of the Epiphany, though, the story seems to be pretty on the nose when it comes to the revelation of the divine presence found in Jesus. I mean, it doesn't get much clearer than a report of God declaring from the heavens, you are my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. When Fred Craddock preached a sermon on this very text in this very pulpit, he noted, though, that Luke tells the story in an unexpected way. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and what a strange thing to say, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, I mean, that's not the way to say it. Luke was acquainted with Mark. He should have said it simply as Mark did, as though there were only two people in the world at that time, John and Jesus, and John baptized Jesus with heaven's approval. That would be the way to do it, something dramatic. You don't say, and when all the people were baptized, and Jesus also. And Jesus also? Matthew would never say a thing like that. In fact, Matthew, when he has John looking down the way and here comes Jesus, he said, whoa, 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 I'm not going to baptize you. You should baptize me. It should be the other way around. And Jesus said, leave it alone. Just do what's right, what God wants. Go ahead. What a remarkable way for Luke to say it. There was an early church father name of Epiphanius. This will be on the test, so jot it down. <laughs> Epiphanius said he had heard that when Jesus was baptized, there was a bright light from heaven that shone upon the surface of the water. And we know that Jerome, the church historian and translator, said that he had heard that when Jesus was baptized, fire spread across the surface of the Jordan. That's the way to tell about Jesus' baptism. This is no ordinary person. At least Luke could say, John told Jesus, oh no, not with the rest of them. When I get through with the crowd, then we'll have a special private service for you. You're different. But Luke didn't. And when all the people were baptized, and Jesus also was baptized. To be fair to John the Baptist, he probably had just as hard of a time recognizing Jesus as we might. Jesus did not walk around with a glowing halo. And we have just a few stories about Jesus in his infancy and childhood, and when I say just a few, I mean it. Really, there are just two, both of which Luke tell us about. I mentioned them last week. After Jesus is born, we learn that Mary and Joseph present him in the temple. And then years later, when they returned to Nazareth after celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem, Jesus stayed behind without telling his parents so that he could sit among the teachers, listening and asking questions. And the closest we get to an indication that Jesus was above average is the line that those who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. To be clear, he was not amazing enough to get out of trouble with his mother. Child, why have you treated us like this? Mary demands to know when they finally track him down. 
Luke sums up the rest of Jesus' childhood by telling us in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. But there are no details about how or what, by what measure. In what ways did Jesus increase in wisdom and divine and human favor? We don't have a single one of his report cards that might have hinted at Jesus' greatness. We have no ancient student of the month certificates, no indication of straight A's or being in the gifted and talented program. He did not have an name image likeness deal, but perhaps Jesus wasn't athletic. But he's also not listed as drum major, and there's no record of him being on the honor roll in show choir, a chess club standout, or captain of the debate team. Which makes us wonder if Jesus even knew that he was Jesus. I mean, he too may have felt remarkably unremarkable. It appears Jesus had done nothing of note up to this point. He hadn't published a single book, and as far as we know, he wasn't married and didn't have a kid. By all appearances, he seemed to be just another 30-something millennial living in his parents' basement. (laughs) Perhaps we can imagine, just for a moment, that this is why Jesus showed up at the River Jordan that day. Perhaps Jesus had not realized who he was at this point, what he was capable of. He had not had a revelation, had not had an epiphany. He had not found himself, discovered his purpose, or written a personal mission statement. And this is why he trudged out to the middle of nowhere and found himself at the water's edge to hear a motivational speaker in the hopes of getting, well, motivated. Or, on the other end of the spectrum, maybe Jesus was really a perfectionist. Researchers think that there are five different types of perfectionists. You can take a test to see which kind you are. Ask me how I know. (laughs) Anyway, it's possible that Jesus was the procrastinator type of perfectionist, described by Dr. Catherine Schaeffler as the perfectionist who waits for the conditions to be perfect before starting. Dwelling in hesitation, they live alongside the void that forms within you when you don't do the thing you most want to do. It's possible that Jesus knew his call 20 years before, when he sat with the teachers and rabbis in the temple, listening, asking questions, and teaching. But as an adult, he never felt the moment was right to really go for it. Procrastinator perfectionism. Classical millennial or procrastinator perfectionator. Pro, that was a lot. (laughs) Classic millennial or procrastinator perfectionist. We'll never know. What we do know, though, is that John the Baptist was persuasive enough to get Jesus to move from the river bank into the riverbed. And once he was there, the story tells us a voice from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. So this may have been a surprise to Jesus 
for all the reasons I mentioned above, we know how it feels, especially this time of year with New Year's resolutions and the idea that we need to run faster, jump higher, dive deeper, and come up drier. Even those of us who say, New Year, same me, are often quietly evaluating, comparing, and usually feeling like we do not measure up. It is not hard to imagine that Jesus might have felt this way. We can appreciate that it was not a small miracle. Jesus even heard the message of his belovedness. So often our own self, negative self-talk makes it hard to hear anything else. With God's declaration in this text in mind, Henry Nouwen writes, It is certainly not easy to hear that voice in a world filled with voices that shout, you are no good, you are ugly, you are worthless, you are despicable, you are nobody, unless you can demonstrate the opposite. These negative voices are so loud and so persistent that it is easy to believe them. That's the greatest trap. It is the trap of self-rejection. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. It seemed not to matter to God that Jesus was not self-published or peer-reviewed. It didn't matter that Jesus hadn't started anything yet. God's mind was already made up about Jesus. What we often miss is what happened next, the quiet part that needs to be said aloud, which is that Jesus believed it. This seems to be the turning point. The next verse, verse 23, says Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. In the next chapter, Jesus preaches his first sermon, borrowing the words from Isaiah that he has been sent to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as we know from the rest of the Gospels, Jesus practiced what he preached. The transition, it seems, is connected to this message of belovedness, this was the thing Jesus needed to know, and it changed everything. This is what he needed to know in order to launch. Not that he was the Messiah or the savior of the world. God did not say that. Jesus needed to know that he was loved. So that's what God said. One might say that this message of being loved became his main message going forward, telling people that they were seen and loved. In his book, Life of the Beloved, Nouwen states, I must tell you that claiming your own blessedness always leads to a desire to bless others. It is remarkable how easy it is to bless others to speak good things to and about them, to call forth their beauty and truth, when you yourself are in touch with your own blessedness. The blessed one always blesses. That's a solid summary of the work and ministry of Jesus. 
The question is what will we do with that same message? God wasn't speaking just to Jesus. If that had been the case, God would have said something along the lines of what the angels had said, you are the Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. But God doesn't say that. It seems the most significant thing a person can hear is that we are loved. And the hard part is believing it. This is especially challenging for people raised on capitalism, achievement, and productivity. Exactly. <laughs> it's that bad. This is, do not walk out of here with her. This is perhaps one of the most important reasons why we baptize our babies and children with the same words we hear in our story today. Because our hope, our intent, is that our children will know in their bones that they are God's beloved in whom the holy is well pleased. Because they will have heard that message early and often. But it's not just a message for Jesus or for our tiniest heretics. It goes for the rest of us too. 30-somethings, 90-somethings, careerless or mid-career, retired or searching, wandering or wondering. God's mind is made up. You are my beloved. In you, I am well pleased. Do you believe it? You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.